So let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for our friend and our brother Abraham, his family. You know where they are, and you know all of the details, and that's all that counts. But we do lift them up in prayer. We thank you that they have survived another day. We pray you would protect them, Lord, from the Taliban, but even more importantly, from the enemy who has come to kill and to destroy. Father, we pray that you would keep them safe, protect them with your guardian angels, give them wisdom. And Father, we pray that they would be able to come together as a family here to Colorado. We also pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray, Lord, that there are so many Christians there that those that are believers, whether they are serving in the military or as volunteers with the military or just in a civilian capacity, while their nation and their neighborhoods, their cities, their towns, their villages are under attack, even right now, we pray that their light would so shine before men that they would glorify their Father in heaven. That people would see Jesus in the way that they have a calmness about them, whether in by life or whether by death. We ask your protection upon our brothers and sisters in Christ who are under attack now in Ukraine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you did not receive the notes, see Lori uh, or Robin, uh, and uh, they'll get the notes to you. The notes are also available online, and you can see Lori for, for instructions how to uh, get those notes online. Well, we begin our study of the book of Revelation going through chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, John set this, he sets the stage to record about uh, what, what's about to take place. He addresses seven letters to seven local churches. All of those churches are in modern-day Turkey. And uh, those were real churches at that time with real pastors, with real people in the congregation, with real problems, and they were facing very serious problems, such as our friends, our brothers and sisters, are facing this very moment in Ukraine and in Afghanistan and quietly behind closed doors where life makes up its mind right here in Carbondale, in Colorado, in West Virginia, in California, New York, and across the nation. Very real problems. Their relatives or friends were being tortured. They were being martyred. They were being fed to lions. All of those things we discussed. In chapter 4, the curtain rises. And John, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, writes and describes in detail the throne room of the king, the throne room of heaven. And we had a glimpse as we went verse by verse through the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation of what heaven looks like. We learned about cherubim. We learned about seraphim. We learned about the throne of God. We learned about the rainbow. We learned about what all these things represent. We had a taste of what we will experience when we go to heaven. We learned that every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place, before Jesus descends from heaven with the voice of an archangel, a shout, the trumpet, and we are caught up to meet him in the air, a grand reunion. We go and spend seven years in heaven with him 
during this honeymoon period, and it will be marvelous. But there's more to come, because later on, at the end of this course, when we get to the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, specifically the last two, we're going to learn more about heaven, more about what we'll be doing, more about our roles in heaven. So we're getting there. I'm trying to go about this in a chronological way. So chapter four, the curtain rises. Chapter five, the drama begins. So that's where we are tonight. Revelation chapter five. We've taken quite a bit of time to go through chapters one, two, three, and four. And a dear brother said earlier tonight, David, you better uh, shift out of first gear and into second gear if you're going to finish this book of Revelation before wheels lift off and you're on your way to Israel. So we'll, uh, we'll sp maybe shift into second gear tonight and uh, move right along. Chapter 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Verse 4. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop! Stop weeping! Look! The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represents the sevenfold spirit of God. Uh, I'm sorry, which represents the sevenfold uh, spirit of, of, of God. Um, that is sent out into every part of the earth. Verse 7, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And he took the scroll, and when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Verse 9, and they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again. And I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then 
I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Verse 14, and the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. If, if the scroll that John sees in his vision as he is taken up to heaven in the spirit from the barren Patmos, barren island of Patmos where he was exiled as a prisoner is similar to the scrolls of John's day, other scrolls, it was made of an 8 by 10, made up of 8 by 10 sheets of papyrus. These 8 by 10 sheets of papyrus were connected horizontally and wound around a wooden handle. We read about that in verse 1. Now letters the size of Jude, a very small letter, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, they would all be written on one single piece of papyrus. That's how it worked. But the book of Revelation is a long book, and it would require a scroll of these 8 by 10 sheets of papyrus connected horizontally together about 15 feet long as you unroll the scroll. Think of unrolling uh, bounty towels <laughs> or some other, uh, some other thing. 15 feet long. The scroll here. It's very important. Every word in the Bible is there for a reason. And the Bible says the scroll was written on both sides. That's very important to remember. And it was sealed with seven seals in verse 1. Now these seals would usually be a design or a name that would be engraved in a rock or a piece of metal or perhaps a precious stone maybe on the on the on the finger of, of royalty or of important military leader and then it would be pressed into clay or soft wax to harden. Some people still use these seals today. My wife has used these seals on special letters that she has written to me. Even when I was a missionary in Vanuatu when mail would take at least six months to reach me every once in a while there would be an envelope with a seal on it, a very special touch. It spoke of her wonderfulness. <laughs> she wasn't a governor. She wasn't a mayor. She wasn't a chief of police. But she was wonderful in my eyes, and I loved receiving that. And I knew that I was allowed to break that seal and open up uh, that letter. Seals were used. Uh, to authenticate ownership. Seals were used to deny access to certain people. Do you remember Jesus' tomb was sealed? They didn't put a seal all the way around the stone. Those of you going to Israel in a few weeks, we are going to go to the tomb. But the seal wasn't all the way around the stone. It was like a big wheel that was rolled in front of the, of the door of the tomb. There was just a seal placed there perhaps on something like a ribbon which 
denied access by the authorities that be, that no one was allowed to roll that stone away. These seals were located throughout the scroll. They were just seven seals altogether. But as you unrolled the scroll, then there would be one seal, a few more feet, another seal, a few more feet, another seal, and so on. So as each one was broken, more of the scroll could be read. Now in the days of John, only a particular now listen, gang, you may not know this. Only a particular, a very specific type of document um, was written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. This was a document that many of you have probably dealt with in your life. It was a title deed to a piece of property. That was the document that had seven seals. Initially, a title deed to a piece of property would be written only on one side of the scroll, and then it would be sealed with a single seal. How do we know? Well, Josephus and other historians that are highly respected and regarded tell us, but we also read about this in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 29, if you would like to do some more research there. But if, but, but if, if the owner became unable to meet his financial obligations, in other words, to pay his mortgage to whoever held the, the mortgage, he would have to relinquish his title deed, take that scroll back, and on the back side of the scroll, his debts would be listed, all the debts that he owed. Then seven seals would be placed on that scroll. It was a real estate document, a legal document. If at any time during the ensuing seven years the debts were paid, then the seals would be broken and the title deed would be returned back home, back to the purchaser of that property. This explains what we read in verse 1. The scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. It was a title deed, and there were debts against that property. It's the title deed to planet Earth. And the title deed to this planet that was originally given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You Bible scholars remember that God told them to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Genesis 1.26. We have dominion over these animals, big and small. A few months ago, Robin and I were teaching in Africa. In the country of Tanzania, Robin was teaching at an elementary school and I was teaching at a Bible college. And I taught the students there that we have been given dominion over all these great animals. And it was there in Tanzania that we saw the elephants, we saw the jaguars, we saw the leopards, we saw the lions, the wildebeest, the zebra, the Cape buffalo, and we saw the pumba, otherwise known as the warthog, if you've watched uh, the movie, what is it called, Animal? 
Lion King, if you saw the movie Lion King, the Pumbaa, or the Warthog, one of my favorites, the secretary bird, and even the little animals, and even the tiny animals, like virus, and amoebas, and bacterias. They're all living, and God has given us dominion, not only of the great blue whale, or the great uh, humpback whales that we regularly see right out of our living room window in, in Maui as they leap out of the water and come down with a splash, not only the big whales and the elephants, but the little guys as well. God has given us, human beings, dominion. But Adam and Eve forfeited the right to ownership to the title deed of planet Earth. When Adam ate of the fruit, oh, didn't Eve eat first? Yes, but it was Adam that was blamed, not Eve. Adam tried to blame Eve, but God said, no, it's your fault, Adam. So, ladies, there you go. It's Adam's fault. When he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how do we know? Romans 5.14 tells us so. This explains why Paul called Satan the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is called by God Almighty the God of this world. Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world in John 12, 31. This world, this world, not the kingdom that we are citizens of, but this world. So when people say, if God's so good, David, why are the innocent people of Ukraine suffering so much tonight? Those bombs that were dropped earlier today that have been outlawed by the international community for the vile torture and injury that are caused upon human beings. I won't go into detail. You can read more about that online. If God's so good, why are there wars? Why are there cancers? Why are children dying of disease? Innocent children, floods, pandemics, murders, injustice in this world. Well, when people ask that question, they're blaming the wrong person. The planet that God gave Adam and Eve was absolutely perfect in every way. Humans are to blame for turning this planet over Satan. We had the title deed in our hand through Adam and Eve, but we turned it over to Satan by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's the reason the people to whom John was writing were watching their loved ones being fed to lions, being tortured, being crucified during the time that John wrote this letter to the seven churches that we've already studied. So Revelation was written to address the questions of the early church and the questions that people are asking today. So the angel asks in verse 2, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Notice he didn't ask who is willing. Alexander the Great was willing, you have in your notes. Genghis Khan, he was willing. Charlemagne was willing. Hitler 
Adolf Hitler was willing, but, 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 but the angel doesn't ask who is willing. There have been many people throughout history that are willing to take authority and break the seals and claim the title deed, but they are not worthy. So when no one comes forward in heaven because no one is worthy to reclaim earth's title deed, tears begin to flow in verse 4. John is weeping. There's no one. Now the Greek words there, weep bitterly, actually mean sobbing convulsively. I don't know if you have in your life, but maybe you have seen someone, I certainly have in the darkest days of my life, sob convulsively. Maybe you have. Maybe you can relate when there's no more tears. You've cried all the tears and you still have to cry some more. When your gut is wrenched, when the darkness is so real that you can taste it in your mouth. I've been there as a believer, as a Christian, and it is not a sin if you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death. David addresses that. John is overwhelmed by grief when he realizes that the earth would remain in Satan's grasp forever in verse 4. Although John was sobbing convulsively, those around him, ah, spoiler alert, they knew something that John didn't know. Verse 5 says, But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Buck up, buttercup. No, he didn't say that. He said, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 5. This refers to Genesis 49, gang, where Jacob, you remember the story back then in Genesis 49, where Jacob calls his 12 sons together to pronounce a blessing on each one of them. Do you remember that? And finally, he comes to Judah. When he comes to Judah, Jacob describes Judah as a young lion. And then he says in Genesis 49 that power and authority would be his until the coming of the Messiah. Way back in Genesis 49, Jesus was born of the lineage of David. But, 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 because Jesus preceded David. Jesus has always been for all eternity. Jesus did not come into existence on Christmas morning when he was born in the manger in Bethlehem. No, Jesus always was. He came into existence as a human baby and grew up to be a man, of course, but he was always there, always, always, always. John chapter 1 tells us that by the word of our Lord, he spoke the universe into being. Is Jesus God? Absolutely, he's God. Is he man? Absolutely, he's man. Do I fully understand it? No, I don't fully understand it. But he is, and he spoke the universe into being. So because Jesus uh, preceded David by all eternity, he's the root of David as well as the heir to David's throne. We just read about that in verse 5. 
And because Jesus is from, is from David's family line, he fulfills the promise of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 49, going back to Judah and Jacob. So the angel tells John not to weep because this won't go on forever. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, that can only be one person, Jesus Christ has won the victory. So John turns around and what does he see? The Bible tells us in verse 6, a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Verse 6. Now the Greek word here translated lamb means pet lamb. Every time that Robin and I drive to church from our little apartment in Basalt, we pass three sheep. Um, they're sheep. And they'll have their wool cut. But this isn't just any old sheep. This means a pet lamb. That's the word. And the lamb that John saw looked as though it had been slaughtered. According to Isaiah 52 verse 14, his face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would, from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. That is how 33-year-old Jesus looked. It's not only that Jesus' beard was plucked out, that his back was beaten, that his side was pierced, that his wrists and his feet were nailed with a big solid spike into that cross. It's not only the psychological and spiritual stress that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane that caused the blood vessels in his face to burst, but Jesus experienced torture in ways that we will never never understand, no matter how hard we try, until we see him. Answers to prayers that we prayed long ago. Um, the Bible says, until we see him, we'll never know. The Bible also says that our prayers are stored in gold bowls. Did you read that? Now, God doesn't always answer our prayers immediately, but they're stored in golden bowls. And so my question to you tonight is, how full is your bowl in heaven? Are you praying? Don't worry about the King James English. You don't have to pray eloquent prayers like Pastor Daniel or someone else. You can just cry out like David did when he sobbed, when there were no words, when he was in anguish. So, who are the only people who can say, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it? For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people, has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Verse 9, only the church, only the church. This means the church is in heaven when this was written, Revelation chapter 5, before the tribulation begins in Revelation chapter 6. 
People from every nation are praising God before his throne. Jesus has already paid the penalty for sin. He's now gathering us into his kingdom and making us priests. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. So in the future, we will reign with him. Luke chapter 22. So the question remains, some of you might have, will there be dogs and cats and pets in heaven? Since we read about animals in this passage. Well, the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, through the prophet Isaiah, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, Isaiah 65. So although we don't know for certain, the Bible says a great deal about animals. The Bible portrays them as earth's second most important inhabitants. God has entrusted animals to us, and our relationship with animals are a significant part of our, of our lives. Most of you know that. We live in an area of the country where people are in love with their pets, whether they be dogs or cats or horses or whatever. So God's entrusted these animals to us. The Bible's description of animals peacefully inhabiting the earth in Isaiah 65 may apply to the millennial kingdom on the old earth, but I believe it it probably more likely applies uh, to God's eternal kingdom where humankind and animals will together enjoy a redeemed earth. Will there be no more sickness or death? or sorrow, not only for people, for animals. So many people want to know, well, David, are my pets then going to live again? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But Romans 8, 20 for 23 tells us that animals are a part of God's suffering creation, eagerly awaiting deliverance through the resurrection. This would indicate that some animals that lived and suffered and died on the old earth will be made new on the new earth. Would some of those animals then be our pets? Possibly. Wouldn't it be just like God to take the animals entrusted to our care here in the old world and allow us to enjoy with them the wonders of the new world? Just a thought, but it's a nice thought, isn't it? One thing we know for certain is that heaven will be perfect. Well, the Bible says amen in verse 14. And that simply means yes. That's what the word amen means. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with the resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. So because the lamb that was slain has taken control of the scroll, the title deed to the earth, there's continuous praise and worship in heaven. Amen. Yes, he is worthy. So isn't that cool? That's what the scroll represents, the title deed to planet earth. Well, 
Now we're going to digress just a little bit because I want to go through the study of Revelation in chronological order. Immediately after the rapture, every Christian whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who bears fruit of the Spirit, you'll know them by their fruit, will stand before Christ to be judged by him. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Is that scary? As we've already discussed. Not because of what we have done or what we haven't done. This has nothing to do with our salvation. Only the saved will be there. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15. This is the time that we will be given awards. We will be given crowns for what we have done here on planet Earth. There is no other time to earn these crowns. You cannot earn these crowns in heaven. Only during this lifetime. We talked about all five of these crowns. We named these five crowns. Uh, these crowns are reserved for those who are obedient to his calling. You can go back to your notes on Revelation 4, and we discuss that in detail. Works with the wrong motives, maybe just to get a crown, maybe just to be recognized. Works with the, done with the intention of impressing others, they're worthless. They don't apply to those crowns. So I think it will be very interesting to see these people that are not household names, that aren't Christian celebrities that are pastors of churches with 10 or 20 or 30,000 people. Maybe it's a little old widow who is praying in Ukraine tonight. And as a result of her prayers in those golden bowls of heaven, God's answered those prayers and many have been saved. Perhaps a nation has been saved and she will receive those crowns. On the other hand, those Christians that are arrogant and proud and saying that God doesn't want anyone to ever be sad or to have ever, ever have any aches or pains or illnesses and never be poor, that is a lie. That is found nowhere in Scripture. The Bible says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So, those type of Bible teachers who are in it for money, for fame, for fortune. Not only will they not have any crowns, but they, not, they may not be in heaven at all. We talked about that. Those works done with wrong motives, they'll not survive the test of fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. At the judgment seat of Christ... The bride, that's us, believers, Christians, we will wear bright and clean linen. And that is described in Revelation chapter 19. We'll get to that in more detail. Verse 17, the linen that we are wearing is the righteous acts of the saints. You say, David, I'm not righteous. Man, oh, when I read that, when I read that Facebook comment about me, when I read that email when I heard that on the news, oh, I'm glad you weren't around to hear what came out of my mouth. None of us are righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. But we are righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. So God doesn't see us for what we do or don't do. He sees us through the, through the lens of the, blood of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
So at this point, the lamb, Jesus Christ, takes the bride, that's us Christians, for his wife, but the marriage supper of the lamb doesn't take place until after the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's during the first part of the millennium. So two different events. The rapture, when the church is caught up in the sky to meet our Lord in the air, and then later on, the second coming of Jesus Christ during the first uh, part of the millennium after the tribulation. That's when all believers throughout the ages will be present. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Now, the tribulation period does not begin immediately after the rapture. The church disappears, perhaps with so many young people engaged in video games on their phones, on their computers, and elsewhere, and space aliens. There's a tremendous interest there. Maybe the explanation for Christians that have all disappeared from the face of the earth, all those religious people, all those troublemakers, they're finally out of here. Now the dawning of the age of Aquarius can begin, and let's party hardy. And that's how the world will see it. And maybe they'll say, finally, space aliens have come and just taken all these people out. They've just disappeared from the face of the earth. I don't know if that's going to be the explanation, but it could be. It could be. The tribulation period will begin when the Antichrist signs a covenant, a legal political covenant with Israel for seven years, a covenant that he breaks in the middle of the tribulation. We're going to get to that. But a little spoiler alert, you can read more about that in Daniel chapter 9. Following the rapture of the Christians, that's when we go to meet our Lord in the air, the church being the bride, the religious people will be left behind. These religious people believe in Jesus. Well, after all, Satan believes in Jesus. These religious people may even go to church occasionally, maybe Easter, maybe Christmas, once in a while. They're good people. They do nice things. They vote. They pay their taxes. They give to the poor. They have nice personalities, and we like to talk with them, and they like to talk to us. But they will be left behind, these good people, these religious people, and they will help facilitate the great delusion of the Antichrist in the form of a world church. We'll read and study about that, that more in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. This ecumenical church, when everybody will come together, join hands and sing kumbaya together, it will pave the way for the one world religion. This will include, eventually, the worship of the Antichrist. We'll get to that in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. The false prophet will be the head of the one world's church, also called Satan's harlot. During the tribulation, he'll advocate receiving the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, and we will get to that as well. So, let's go back to our text. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 6. Just want to put things in perspective. And here we find the opening of the seven seals. The tribulation is be beginning here on earth when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Revelation chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 17. The Bible says, as I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come, look up. And I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, come. I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, a loaf of wheat bread a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil and wine. Verse 7. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Kind of an ugly horse. Its rider was named Death. And his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and disease and wild animals. When the Lord broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. Verse 10. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Verse 12, then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. I watched as the lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Verse 13, then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from the tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? Now, Jesus, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, talks about the conditions of the world as we see outlined here in the, these books of, in these chapters of Revelation. The false Messiah, the false cross, wars and, and rumors of wars, international dis, uh, dis, distress and discord, famines, pestilences, martyrdom, earthquakes, and uh, the things that will appear in the in the sky. Uh, and so I've given you all the references there on that chart in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Luke and 
uh, in, in Revelation. And you'll see in Revelation, it covers Revelation 6, just what we read. So from our study of Revelation chapter 5, we know that the scroll had a total of seven seals. Chapter 6 is a parallel to the Olivet Discourse. You can look at the chart on your notes there that I gave you, found in Matthew 24 and Luke, 20, Luke 21. What Jesus taught there on the Mount of Olives, where some of you will be in just a few weeks. Chapters 6 through 19 describe the seven-year period of the tribulation. Now, students of the book of Revelation, whether you're watching online or here tonight at the Orchard, and for those of you that are watching online, we're so glad you joined us. We are so glad you're here, and you can get the notes from the book of Revelation online. If you have questions, just to email or uh, go to the website or give uh, Lori Darling a call here at the Orchard, and she'll help, help you through it. But chapters 6 through 19 describe the seven-year period of the tribulation, and there's more space allocated in the Bible to the tribulation than any other subject in the Bible except salvation and the promise of Christ's second coming. The most commonly referred to topic in the scripture is salvation, God's love for everyone regardless of their political ideology. The second most addressed topic in all of the Bible is Christ's second coming. Not his first coming, but his second coming. And then the third is the tribulation. Uh, so it's mentioned over 49 times in the Old Testament and over 15 times in the New Testament, the tribulation. The tribulation will last a period of seven years. We'll get to that a little bit later, but for those of you that want to do research, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Exactly seven years to the day. It will be a holocaust of major proportions. It will combine the wrath of God with the fury of Satan. And remember that only God is omnipotent. Only God is all-powerful. Satan is not all-powerful, but he is powerful, but not all-powerful. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And who's the prince of this world right now? Satan. The day will come when Jesus will once again sit on the throne in the new Jerusalem. The lion will lay down with the lamb. It's going to be a perfect, perfect world with a perfect government because it will be a theocracy, Jesus will rule and reign, and his rule is always perfect and always loving. But until that day comes, it will combine during the tribulation the fury of Satan, the wrath of God, and the evil nature of man and womankind run wild. So why does God allow the tribulation? Great question. I put four reasons there in your notes. Number one, to bring time to an end. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Number two, to fulfill Israel's promise, Israel's prophecies, Ezekiel 37 and 38. And then when we address the battle of Armageddon, we're going to get into all that. And what these names represent, specific nations are represented. We'll talk about that. The military strategy, it's all there. We'll get there. Number three, to shake people from their false sense of security. And there's a lot of people that have a false sense of security on this planet tonight. 
finally, number four, to force people to choose Christ or the Antichrist. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God doesn't make anybody robots. He doesn't program people's minds. We are all given the freedom of choice. The Bible says, choose you this day who you will follow. We can choose Jesus Christ or we can choose the Antichrist and Satan. And everybody, even those, born, those children born during the millennium, they will not be our grandchildren or our children or our great-great-grandchildren. We'll get to that. They will have a choice, and we will see that many of them, even after experiencing a perfect earth with Christ ruling and reigning from the, ruling and reigning from the new Jerusalem, they will choose to follow Satan. Why? We'll get there. But God gives everybody a choice. Nobody is programmed or forced to go to heaven. Certainly, no one is programmed or forced to go to hell. But every person that has ever walked on the face of the earth since Adam and Eve will spend eternity forever. They will live forever. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. They will live forever. Our friends, our family members will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. So the tribulation is the result of the, of, of the rebellion of all humankind and sin. Now, as each of the first four seals is opened, a rider on a horse appears. We read that. By their appearance, we, it's, it's very clear that these guys are not looking for a game of polo. These riders riding on these horses have come to be called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first rider is on a white horse, which would normally be a symbol of victory. Normally the conquering general, sometimes even the conquering king, would, would lead the parade with all the conquering heroes, with the captured slaves behind, sometimes with hooks in their mouth, riding upon a white horse. Now, although its rider carried a bow, we just read, and a crown was placed on his head, the rider on this white horse is not Jesus. I've heard sermons that this is Jesus. It is not Jesus. The Bible is very, very clear. The Greek word translated crown here is Stephanos in verse 2, and a it's not a diadem. It's a Stephanos. A diadem is a permanent crown. A Stephanos is a wreath of olive branches. Remember we talked about that as we looked at the seven churches during the games, the forerunner of our Olympic games, when a crown of olive branches was placed on the victor's head. It only lasts for a short while. Verse 2 says, the rider of this horse rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. So if the rider is not Jesus, how will the rider of this white horse, carrying a bow and wearing a crown of olive branches, gain the victory? He will be a master of intrigue and a master of deception. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 8 about this individual, Daniel 8, 23, 25. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction 
and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. This is a hint of the coming battle between Satan and God at the second battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo, right there in Israel, where some of you will be with us in a few weeks. This is exactly what Jesus prophesied when he said in John 5, 43, for I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you will gladly welcome them. The Antichrist will deceive unbelievers into thinking that he's a wonderful man with all the answers to the problems of this world. Now, if you're with us tonight in person, within the next hour or so, the President of the United States is going to be addressing the nation in what's called the State of the Union Address. If you live in Vanuatu or Afghanistan or other outside the United States, that really doesn't mean much to you, but it's the most important speech that the President gives to the nation once a year, every year. The Bible says that there will arise a man who will be far more popular than this President of the United States. He will be far more popular than any president that the United States has ever had. He will be far more popular than any leader that any nation has ever had, any king or anyone else. He will be loved and adored by all, and people will think he is wise. Oh, he is so very, very wise. The unbelievers on the earth will have little or no biblical knowledge, so they're going to buy into his lies. They're going to say, isn't this wonderful? Everybody's living in peace. Kumbaya is here. The dawning of the age of Aquarius has arised, and the Antichrist will be perceived as a very good man of peace. He will be represented by the white horse, but, 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 but his peace will be a false peace. The Antichrist will rise to power very quickly, and then he will be turned loose to do his evil schemes as he will upon the world. And what is really scary, my friends, is there will be no restraining ministry, nothing to stop him. The Holy Spirit will not be here on planet Earth anymore. God's help will not be here anymore because the Holy Spirit was removed at the beginning of the tribulation along with us, the church. Another name for the Holy Spirit, you Bible scholars know, is comforter. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you have nothing to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. And that love and that power and the sound mind come from the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Not because of our Bible knowledge, not because of our college degrees, not because of our seminary or our church attendance. It is because of the Holy Spirit. He helps us to understand the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit is raptured, if you will, along with the church. And it's important to remember that Jesus, the Lamb, is the one who is breaking the seals in heaven. 
Revelation 5.5. So each of the four living creatures summons one of the horsemen as each seal is broken. And the Bible makes it clear that God is in control. God is in charge, even in the worst of what is about to happen. So, who does the Antichrist bring with him? Stay tuned. Come back next week. Tune in. Once again, I didn't get nearly as far in our text as I had thought. I surely thought we'd at least get through this chapter, but we will finish this chapter next week. We will see the other horsemen on their various horses, and next week we will be talking about politics. Yikes. So what does this old man have to say about politics? Come next week and find out. For those of you watching online, we're so glad you joined us. And you can pick up the notes once again online, or you can contact the orchard for, uh, for uh, further information on how to uh, get these notes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it makes it very, very clear that you took the title deed that was given to Adam and Eve and because of their sin, they had to return it to Satan. And now, Lord, the lamb has been given, the shed blood, so that the debts could be paid. So that once again, you can claim this planet and make it perfect once again. We thank you that you are in control, that you are in charge, even during the worst of times. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.